The Art Newspaper Podcast is brought to you in association with Bonhams, auctioneers since 1793. To find out more, visit bonhams.com. Hello, it's the Art Newspaper Podcast. I'm Ben Luke. Thanks for joining us. Later in the podcast, we visit the Guggenheim Museum in New York as it opens its artistic licence exhibition, for which it invited six artists to choose works in its collection, from masterpieces to lesser-known gems. We speak to the show's curator, Nancy Spector, and to Paul Chan, one of the artists invited to mine the Guggenheim's holdings. But first, boom, mad money, mega-dealers and the rise of contemporary art. That's the title of a new book by Michael Schneerson, a long-time contributing editor to Vanity Fair. The book follows the astonishing story of contemporary art and money from the 1940s, when New York became the centre of the art world, to today. It has a cast of memorable characters, from Betty Parsons in the 1940s, through the great pop art dealer Leo Castelli, to the gallerist in the 1980s boom. But it features a particular focus on today's mega-dealers, like Larry Gagosian, Ivan Wirth, David Zwerner and the Glimpchers who run Pace Gallery. Michael joins me on the line now. Michael, uh, what drew you to this subject in the first place? Well, um, I had written some uh, articles on contemporary art for Vanity Fair, where I'd been for a long time. I always found those great fun. I also happen to live um, uh, on the Upper East Side of Manhattan, surrounded by art dealers, and and, and in particular, very close to uh, Larry Gagosian, the sort of king of all dealers. And I I found it intriguing that no one had yet written a, a, a sort of narrative that told us how we got from you know, Greenwich Village and a few scruffy artists and their loyal dealers to this kind of global bonanza that we have now. So I just thought I would be the guy to do that, which was um, very presumptuous indeed, because as I quickly realized, um, not being an expert, it's a very, very big subject. Um, and a few months into it, uh, I thought I've got to you know scale this down a bit or I'll drown. And uh, I, I, I decided that the dealers were really the most interesting characters to focus on. I mean, you have dealers, you have collectors, you have curators, and you, of course, the artists themselves. And you, you wouldn't have art or an art market without any of those. But the dealers are always sort of at the center of the story. Uh, and they would be my way to tell the story beginning in the post-war period. Was the, was the fact that you weren't initially an expert helpful in the sense that you could come at it from a very objective position? I think so. Um, I, uh, I certainly uh, was not going to venture opinions, judgments about artists, who was good, who was not, whose career would survive. I, 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 I couldn't do that, and I didn't want to do that. And I actually find that sort of uh, art crit, if you will, sort of tedious. Um, uh, I, I felt that I came to this with fresh eyes, as a journalist, just, you know, saying essentially what's the story here and, and also, you know, the famous phrase, follow the money. Um, and without the sort of impediments of of art crit or, or an MFA, God forbid, I just felt um, I could go in there and, and tell the story that I felt was there. You talk about Gagosian. He's a, he's a very, very... He's a massive figure in the art world, but he's also a very, very leading player, if you like, in your in the book. Was access to Gagosian like a key element from the start? Did you did you know that you needed to get access to him to make the book, as it were? Yes, um, I realized uh, something that anyone who'd been in the art market for a while knew, 
which is that uh, there are essentially four of what we call mega dealers. Uh, you know, as this market has evolved over the last 40 or so years, um, these four figures had um, uh, become its its leading figures, its its biggest sellers. Um, and and they were uh, Arnie Glimpshire of Pace Gallery, uh, Ivan Worth of Hauser & Worth, uh, David Zwerner, and Larry Gagosian. Um, and, uh, you know, as a journalist, as a Vanity Fair writer, I knew that um, I wanted to interview them all and that my book would be um, diminished if I was lacking one, <laughs> even. Um, so I did what journalists do in the situation, which is I worked my way up the food chain. Um, I started by interviewing the few people that I actually did know uh, who were uh, artists or dealers and then letting them suggest others and, um, you know, getting to a point uh, with each next dealer. I would write a letter and say, oh, I'm doing this book and wouldn't you love to talk to me because I've already interviewed A, B, C, D, E. And I'd drop all those names (laughs) and then I'd, you know, do the same thing the next time, adding another name. And, you know, the the art market is like any market, or I should say, it's like high school. Uh, everybody um, wants to be with the cool crowd. And, and once you can establish that you've been interviewing the cool crowd, then they want to join. And, you know, ultimately, it happened just as I uh, had imagined or hoped it would, which is that I got uh, one of the mega dealers, then another, then a third. And finally, I went to Larry and said, I've got everybody, including the three other mega dealers. And at that point, um, having ignored my previous entreaties, he agreed to talk. One of the things that, of course, inevitably in, in any book like this is that is that you realize with that range of voices is, of course, they want to hang with the cool crowd, but they also want to get their version of events in. And I think the book's very good in exposing how many of these events are subject to very subjective views on on the part of the various um, participants. Um Yes, that's that's true. I mean, uh, to be perfectly honest, uh, the the first of the the mega dealers whom I interviewed was Arnie Glimpshire of Pace, who's been in the business for uh, half a century. And I was so um, grateful <laughs> to to sit with him for two or three long sessions that I would be lying if I said that that didn't help sort of color the the tone of of my uh, writing about him you know it just it just happens um um and all you can do is try as a journalist to to keep your own objectivity uh and um keep going on to the next story yeah now one of the things i really love about the book is it gave so much color about the early days and you you start in the post-war period basically when new york becomes the center of the art world that seems to me a very deliberate decision that you didn't want to delve into europe pre-war yes that's right um uh it seemed to me that uh 1946-47 was really the exact right time to to jump in um uh, you know pre-war was a whole other time um and actually strictly speaking the phrase contemporary art refers to uh, artists who began doing work um, after World War II, um, as opposed to modern artists who um, did their, you know, started their work before the war. And it gets a little tricky in that um, <clears throat> if you're talking about, let's say, Picasso, he kept going until his death in, I think, 72, 73. Um, 
so he was amid uh, lots of contemporary um, uh, artists, but his art had obviously started long before World War II. So he's a modern artist, so the modern contemporary. And I just thought, why not start at the 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 uh, joint here at the, the turning point where art literally becomes contemporary art, and um, and why not um, uh, look at the dealers who did begin to appear right about then to deal with the artists who were uh, coming from Paris or starting in New York and seeing um, uh, seeing uh, this whole new kind of art. So you have this, right from the start of the book, you have this tremendous sort of battle, these games being played by uh, Betty Parsons and Sidney Janis. That's right. Um, uh, the... Um, the, 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 their predecessor was a, a wonderful uh, dealer named Peggy Guggenheim. Um, and it was Peggy who had discovered Jackson Pollock, uh, among other soon-to-be famous abstract expressionists. But she had come over from Europe and gotten tired of uh, New York and wanted to go back to Venice. So she handed over all her art to Betty Parsons, who was just beginning her own gallery um, uh, in uh, on 57th Street. And um, uh, for a while, for a brief while, Betty Parsons uh, had the had the market to her almost to herself. Uh, for instance, there was a guy named Pierre Matisse, son of the artist, who was a major dealer in New York and who could have um, uh, who could have you know dominated the the field for contemporary art, but he just didn't like it. Um, so Betty Parsons jumped in, and very quickly she had several of the uh, top artists. Um, uh, including Mark Roscoe and Pollock um, and uh, Clifford Still and Barnett Newman. They were all wonderful artists doing their best work just as she took them on. Betty Parsons was a very passionate advocate for her artists. She really never was in it for the money at all. Uh, along came Sidney Janis uh, just about that same time, a little later, early 50s. Sidney Janis was sort of perceived as the money guy because he had invented something called the, the two-button shirt. Um, which became a big hit in the South, um, he uh, took on de Kooning, uh, and he took on Pollock. Um, and uh, Betty Parsons was always very bitter about that and felt that these artists had uh, abandoned her. Um, and they had, um, but that, that was the beginning of, of poaching, if you will, which is, which is very much a theme of, of this book. And then, of course, this larger-than-life figure, Leo Castelli, comes along. And, you know, it's almost as if with each movement, a new crop of dealers comes along. So you have Castelli comes along and it's Johns and Rauschenberg and Pop Art. And then you have minimalist dealers and everything else. So it's really interesting, this cast of characters shifting as the art shifts, isn't it? Well, that's absolutely right, Ben. And uh, at each stage, there is a new dealer or a few dealers who... um, have seen that coming and have uh, jumped in to dominate it. So in the late 50s, you get Leo Castelli uh, opening his gallery and discovering uh, Rauschenberg um, and, and Jasper Johns and, and then getting the whole uh, pop art uh, generation, uh, you know, Roy Lichtenstein, James Rosenquist and Warhol. Um, and, you know, uh, uh, Castelli basically dominated. He ruled until at least the sort of mid-70s. Um, and there are other dealers who are very important that time. Paula Cooper is one that should never be left out. She was championing minimalist art, which came along in the 70s, um, and, uh, and, and, and and others as well. Uh, and then you have in 1979, um, 
this uh, uh, dramatically new generation of dealers, uh, uh, including uh, Gagosian, um, who comes in from California knowing nobody, um, very aggressive guy, um, doesn't have any of the pedigree that, that, that dealers tend to have, um, and just pushes hard to make sales. You know, the classic story about him is that he would go to people's houses for dinner, look at the art on their walls, you know, take surreptitious pictures of it, and then go to some other collector and say, hey, what would you pay for, you know, that uh, Warhol I just saw? And and literally get a, a, a deal going, uh, uh, a negotiating session that neither the buyer nor seller had anticipated being involved with. Um, so he did that brilliantly starting in the early 80s. Mary Boone, also a very important figure whose gallery brought in uh, Julian Schnabel, uh, David Sally, um, uh, and Eric Fischel, um, and and started the whole sort of 80s wave. Um, and, and so that's one in which you see dealers like that. And then comes the crash, the really severe crash of, for, for the art market of 1990, 91. Um, and they were still small enough uh, businessmen that this economic downturn was was devastating. Uh, it didn't kill uh, Gagosian, of course. It it didn't uh, kill Arnie Glimpshire, uh, but it it created a long dry period that only began to end in the in the mid nineties uh, as the economy turned upward again. And then you had a new generation of dealers again, among them David Werner, uh, Ivan Worth. Um, and and even some who weren't uh, mega dealers, but very important, like Gavin Brown. The the Gavin Brown case is really interesting, isn't it? Because Gavin is a great discoverer of artists. He's a British guy who who went over to the states as a, a very young man yeah. as, a, 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 as an artist and became a dealer and has a knack for discovering dealers. And I, I suppose one of the big narratives is about the way that the art world's changed. I mean, for instance. Uh, in you, you talk about Leo Castelli being very nervous about taking on Warhol because Warhol was with the Stable Gallery, yep. and yet that that's completely changed by the time we get to the nineties, where dealers are actively pursuing other galleries' artists. Very true. Uh, that's right. You know, Castelli had that European uh, grace about him. He never would have poached an artist. Um, and uh, uh, by the eighties, uh, people were were poaching right and left. Uh, I mean, just the um, the, the rivalry among three or four dealers for Basquiat uh, is itself a, a sort of central chapter of the story. Um, and Basquiat, you know, sadly, um, druggy that he was, um, you know, could could be brought from one to another just based on who is going to wave uh, uh, money in front of him. Um, and so that was very much the case. I'm going to say Gavin Brown is one of my favorite artists. Um, he uh, tended to have uh, artists poach from him, by the way, although he does his share of poaching, too. Um, but he's he's uh, most important as someone, as you say, who, who has a very good eye. Um, uh, one one critic, Alan Schwartzman, uh, declared to me that Gavin Brown is the successor to Castelli, that he really has an eye that's that good. And among the artists that he began to promote uh, was one of my favorites, uh, Peter Doig, uh, a wonderful um, sort of impressionistic painter, almost very untypical of what you were seeing in the mid '90s. But but he was sort of bringing it back to more painterly um, art, and uh, and and he was Gavin's discovery, um, and Chris Ophelia, uh another, um, and 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 
you know, more than the particular artist, what Gavin Brown did <clears throat> is um, uh, to embrace artists who were already his friends, <laughs> which seems like a sort of nepotistic thing to do. But in fact, uh, it's always been that way. You know, uh, artists uh, promote each other to, to galleries. Um, as one, one person told me, you know, Castelli didn't get all those artists by going after them and finding them in little obscure uh, studios. You know, artist one would come to him and say, hey, you really ought to take a look at artist two here. And, and, and he would do that. And, and Gavin Brown did the same. I have to now that you've mentioned that that those sort of one artist um, leading to another. You have to tell the story about Rauschenberg and Johns and Leo Castelli. Oh, it's my favorite story, Ben. I'll, I'll make it as brief as I can. <laughs> but but yes, uh, uh, Castelli, in deciding to open a gallery uh, in his father-in-law's townhouse on East Seventy uh, Seventh Street, needed artists, um, and he found a, a first one in Robert Rauschenberg, who had just been let go by Betty Parsons to keep this full circle here. And he, uh, uh, Castelli and his wife, Eliana, who also was a great dealer, uh, came down to look at Rauschenberg's art. Well, a few days before, uh, Castelli had gone to a museum of new uh, sort of second generation abstract art. He was looking for more artists for his new gallery. And he saw a target painting, or so it looked like, like a, you know, sort of riflery target. And the artist's name was Jasper Johns, and he had never heard of Jasper Johns, but he sort of filed it away in his in his mind to look that guy up when he had a chance. So he and Ileana go down to see Rauschenberg, and Rauschenberg offers them a drink. They're in his uh, rather sprawling and uh, uh, junk-filled studio on Pearl Street. And, um, and Castelli asks for ice, and Rauschenberg says, well, I don't have ice, but my downstairs neighbor Jasper does. <laughs> and Castelli says, what? Jasper, Jasper Johns. And of course it is. And uh, uh, so Rauschenberg leads uh, Castelli and Ileana downstairs. They open the door and here are like 20 fabulous Jasper Johns paintings still unseen by the world uh, on, on his walls. And, and Castelli was so excited. It was the most exciting moment of his, of his life. He later said that he sort of neglected poor Rauschenberg (laughs) Uh, who, whom he had promised a first show at the new gallery. And instead he, he gave a first solo show to Johns. He just couldn't, couldn't help himself. He knew that even more than Rauschenberg, Johns was going to define uh, the new art, and, and he did. There's, there's a really interesting quote by Peggy Guggenheim, who, who comes back to New York and sees the, the art business, and is it, is it sort of of the 50s growing and expresses dismay at how much of a business it's become? And it's, it's an extraordinary marker, isn't it? Because one wonders what on earth she would think of what's going on now in the art world. <laughs> <laughs> yes, indeed. Um, I, I love that quote. Um, and the, the beauty of it is that it, it applies just as much to today as it does to that time. You know, she said that in 1959, having been away from New York for eight or 10 years. And she just said, you know, it's all about money now. It's all a business. I mean, you've actually got people buying art and selling it like shares of stock. Well, you know, fast forward to today. And that's exactly what you have um, just on a bigger global scale. I mean, what's the difference? I mean, today you've got uh, about 2000 billionaires uh, around the world, uh, whereas then there were virtually none. Um, And you've got people who can pay any amount of money to uh, buy art and art is sort of the last thing they can actually buy with their money. They've bought everything else. Right. So 
you know, that's different. And therefore, we have a world, a whole uh, circuit of art fairs uh, around the world that, um, that, that dealers feel obligated to show at uh, and that uh, collectors feel obligated to, to go see. And a whole sort of social milieu, which is the other thing. I mean, if you're involved in the contemporary art market now, you're not just buying and selling art. You're socializing with other people just like you, and and you're you're going around the world, and you you'll say hello in Basel and catch up with them at Miami, and you know it's it's a circuit which has given these people, you know, a way of life. Indeed, and you know you spent obviously a lot of time researching this book and talking to all these people. What was what was your ultimate impression of having? you know, having got to the end of this and, and now that you've finished the book, what do you, what do you make of the art? Well, do you, do you have distaste for it or do you feel ultimately there are a lot of good, a lot of forces for good in the art world? Um, I, I don't, uh, feel any distaste for it. And, and I, I, I didn't want to start it. Um, I think some people, you know, would like to tar dealers as kind of, you know, wheeler dealers and, and, uh, and point to instances of fraud, which you can find if you, if you look for them. Um, but I felt, uh, these people were, were all quite passionate and, and I admired what they were doing. And I think that the, the transformation of a, a, a new young artist into one who's actually in the market and selling, uh, for hundreds of thousands of dollars or millions is a fascinating process to, to read about and to observe. Um, and I, uh, I loved writing about them and, and I think I'll keep writing about them because, you know, this is a, this is a market that's, that's changing every, every day. Um, so I guess I'd, I'd put it that way. I, I, I admire them and I think the whole, you know, fascination of, of which artist is going to achieve canonical status, as they say. And, and which will be forgotten in the next uh, 10 years is, is absolutely, uh, you know, compelling. Um, there's a wonderful critic named Jerry Salt, um, writes for New York Magazine, um, and he says, you know, um, it, it's clear that 85% of today's artists will be forgotten uh, in a decade or two. The problem is uh, your uh, idea of which uh, 15% will survive is completely different from my uh, prediction of which 15% will survive. And that's what makes the art market. You know, we, we just don't know. And what about this, you know, there's been a lot of speculation that at some point, all this excess, all this money sloshing around has to meet an end yeah. or has to reach a ceiling. Do you, did you come away with yeah. any thoughts about whether whether that was the case or, or can it just keep growing? Um, I, I think, you know, actually, I think the latter. Um, uh, back in 1990, uh, 91, that, that recession I referred to earlier, I think most dealers felt terrified and, and really thought that the whole game was about over. Um, 2008, uh, they expected the same to happen. Um, but to their surprise, uh, they did survive. Um, and after, you know, two or three lean years, they started doing gangbusters business again. And, and the difference was this growing number of billionaires and, um, and an increasingly educated generation of collectors uh, who weren't necessarily 
the most admirable people in the world. They they were doing what Peggy Guggenheim had had uh, you know excoriated. They they were buying and selling uh, art like like shares of stock, but they were doing it intelligently, and the market began to come back, uh, propelled by by those forces. Now here we are, uh, several years into even the latest um, sort of boom market. Um, I must say, I was always worried during the process of my book that that the market would go down, and then I'd have a book called Boom, you know, <laughs> that was about the bust. Um, but I, you know, I I like the dealers uh, are embedding that that won't happen, um, and it really has to do with the uh, the size of the, the the buying market, and also to this kind of bizarre, nonsensical. Uh, a principle of, of buying art and selling art, which is that uh, oddly enough, the more of it you, that an artist puts out there, um, the, the, the more of a global business he's going to have, uh, the more of a business he's going to have, I should say. Um, you would think the opposite. You would think that if you saturate the market, um, that uh, you're, you're going you're gonna to ruin it and, and the whole thing will come down. Um, but, you know, look at Warhol. Um, Whose whose thousands of works um, uh, were were bought by a few people uh, who then came to dominate that market and know, knew that there was always going to be a buyer for Warhol. Once once you have someone who's a real gold standard artist like that, there's just no shortage of people to to buy his work. And even if it goes down a little bit at auction, it's going to come back up. Well, Michael, thank you so much for talking to us about the book. Sure, Ben. Thanks for your interest. Boom, Mad Money, Mega Dealers and the Rise of Contemporary Art is published by Public Affairs and is priced at $17.99 in the US. You can, of course, find it at a range of online booksellers. We'll be back and heading for the Guggenheim in New York after this. Sadakane is one of Pakistan's finest ever painters, yet he never went to art school and for much of his career pursued a singular vision that set him apart from his contemporaries. He found fame early, both at home and abroad, but by the late 1950s, barely into his mid-30s, he repaired exhausted to the secluded desert coastline of Ghadani. Here, he found a motif that would stay with him for the rest of his life, the cactus. As the artist himself recalled, in the anatomy of these giant plants, I found the essence of calligraphy. Ten years after this epiphany, Zadokane produced Sunrise, to be offered at Bonham's Modern and Contemporary South Asian Art Sale in London in June. In the words of department specialist Tamina Gafar, in its blending of calligraphy, the cactus, and of course the blazing red sunrise of the title, this work is a quintessential Sadakane masterpiece. To find out more, visit bonhams.com. Welcome back. Now, to celebrate the 60th birthday of its Frank Lloyd Wright building, the Guggenheim Museum in New York has organised artistic licence, six takes on the Guggenheim collection, its first exhibition to be curated totally by artists. Each of the six artists involved has been the focus of a solo show at the Guggenheim in the past. In a way, the exhibition is a celebration of the museum's extensive 20th century holdings. Working with curators, the artists have rummaged through the Guggenheim's works and made selections for their own presentations, with each artist occupying one of the six levels of the building. There are nearly 300 works, and some of them have never been shown before. Nancy Kenny, our senior editor in New York, spoke first to Nancy Spector, the Guggenheim's artistic director and chief curator, who organised the show, and then to one of the artist selectors, Paul Chan. 
Nancy, I just took a quick peek of the exhibition as it's being mounted. Can you tell us about the origins of the show? Every few years, we mount exhibitions from the collection. The last one was called Visionaries, and it brought together collections within the collection. So Peggy Guggenheim's collection came from Venice, Solomon R. Guggenheim's founding collection, etc. This time, we wanted to find another way to parse our holdings and decided to invite artists to make the selections for us and with us and to tell different stories than we have told thus far. And we reached out to six artists who have all had one-person exhibitions at the Guggenheim over the years. So they are familiar with us, they know the building, but they didn't necessarily know our collection. And we gave them very open parameters other than the chronological dates. So we asked them to work within a starting point of 1900, which is more or less the beginning of our collection with our Impressionist holdings, and 1980, which is sort of classic contemporary, if you will. And they could choose any theme they wanted. We, each, we gave them each a ramp to create their own individual universes uh, within the space. And we were also interested in participating in a tradition of artist-curated exhibitions. This is the first we've ever done. But certainly it is something that other museums do. And it's also the 50th anniversary of Andy Warhol's Raid the Icebox exhibition at the museum in RISD, in which he selected from the collection. In fact, what he did was take absolutely everything that was in storage and bring it upstairs and display it almost as is. That's not the case here. Um, ours is highly selected, but it was sort of in that spirit to it and recognizing that it is a, a trope. Um, of artists' work, of museums working with artists. Um, do you see the show as a reflection on the Guggenheim's collecting history, or a critique even? Uh, absolutely. That I think was really baked into the invitation because we wanted to be receptive to, you know, what could possibly be a critical analysis of the collection as it's been formed over many, many years, um, I think 70 at this point to be exact. Uh, the foundation was, the Solomon R. Guggenheim Foundation was formed, I think, in 1936. The building, of course, uh, was built and, and opened in 1959. And collecting habits change, of course, uh, over time. And this was really a chance for us to understand how taste was formed, how well we adhered to the canon or perpetuated the canon, if you will, and what was missing. And that ended up being, I would say it's definitely, it's, it's sub, a subtext of the exhibition. Uh, the Guggenheim is still known primarily for its collection of early modernists, uh, non-objective artists like Kandinsky, for example. Do you think this show will broaden perceptions of the collection's strengths? Uh, I think it will broaden perceptions of the collection as a whole and bring in many other layers than we typically show. Because, of course, museums, for the most part, uh, put on view what uh, we're famous for. And in many cases, it's our Kandinsky's, our non-objective, early modern collection. And all of the artists were drawn to works that we're not typically known for, and in many cases, more intimate work. So works on paper, sketches, preparatory type work than the finished masterpieces. So you'll see those side by side, which would not be a typical 
installation, or certainly not one we have done in recent years or even in recent memory. Uh, does the show, in a way, call out what the Guggenheim has neglected? Mm-hmm. For example, weren't women almost totally overlooked when during the obje- non-objective painting period? Well, interestingly enough, that's not the case. There are a number of women artists in our collection who were uh, collected very, very early and supported by Hilary Bay, who were in the non-objective school. Uh, there is a question about the quality of that work. We certainly looked at it for this show, and Jenny Holzer very specifically wanted to exhibit only work by women artists. So we were very careful to find a balance of terrific work by women artists, uh, and in some cases work that we haven't exhibited before for various reasons. Some have recently come into the collection, even though they predate 1980. Uh, so it wasn't just to show women for the sake of showing women, but to show, to use Jenny's words, examples that were wondrous. Did each of the artists come to the Guggenheim with a pretty firm idea of what they wanted to do? Uh, I think it was that the, the themes for each section evolved through conversation. To some extent, we knew some of their interests and brought ideas and made suggestions because it, our collection is not that huge. It, it's a, a, probably around 10,000 objects, uh, which when you compare that to the Met or MoMA or um, even the Whitney, I think it's pretty on the smaller scale. And we didn't want them to have to comb through an entire database. So we early on had conversations. What are you interested? What areas would you like to explore? How can we... You know, make this easier for you. And uh, some were very specific, like with Jenny Holzer, as I mentioned, it was always to work with women artists. Other themes evolved as they looked at the collection more closely. Did you try to nudge any of the artists in a particular direction as they deliberated? If I did, I wouldn't say. <laughs> <laughs> did you make any discoveries of your own during this process? Oh, for sure. For sure. There are many works included uh, by artists who are in our collection, but they did not realize we owned uh, those particular examples by the artists. What Psycho Chang chose to focus on are either very early or very eccentric works by well-known artists, which if you encountered on a, in a, in a museum without a label, you would not necessarily identify it by being by Kandinsky or Mondrian or Yves Klein or Franz Klein, for that matter. And there's, I don't know if you had a chance to see it, but in the high gallery, there's a salon-style hang of many, many, many works. And many of them are works on paper that are completely uh, surprising. Um, Figurative work by abstract artists. uh, Figurative work by conceptual artists. So it's quite marvelous. And, And also mixed into that, are figurative works by Psycho Chang that he lent to us. Uh, Landscapes and still lives and portraits from when he was a student in China. And you can see which modern artists he was studying at the time. And of course, his practice is very expansive, and he's known as both a person who works with gunpowder to either make paintings or events or very immersive installations. So I think um, there's discovery on many levels there about his work, but also about our collection. Uh, the introductory wall level talks about brand names as a concept. For Sai, his section is called non-brand, which is, I think, a, we also have it in Chinese because it's a literal translation. I think we would say off-brand um, in English. 
But again, it's this, what he was interested in exploring is how museums and probably galleries and the whole cultural complex, uh, commercial complex, adheres to brand names. We just saw Jeff Koons sell for $110 million, if I have that number correct. That's a great Koons. I'm not disparaging it, but it's a very well-known work and a very well-known name. And he wanted to work against that by taking very well-known names associated with Guggenheim in particular, and again, showing surprising early works, experimental works, because he wanted to also get at this idea of the passion that these artists bring, even at the earliest stages of their career. And then what he did to offset that is he created four paintings on glass with gunpowder that emulate four very well-known works from the Guggenheim collection, one of which was included in uh, Carrie Mae Weems' selection, which is Arfans Klein uh, abstract painting. And But he created them out of gunpowder. So they are hanging there as branded objects, if you will. You've also enlisted Paul Chan, you know, who's focusing on the theme of the bather. Mm-hmm. And can you explain that? Uh, Paul asked us to f- identify works in the collection that either had themes of water, bathing, ocean, um, to some extent migration. He, at that time, was working on a project in Greece on the Odyssey. So I think he was thinking a lot about voyages and, and water. And it evolved to be um, a very beautiful installation, very surprising to us because, again, we're the Museum of Non-Objective Painting from the beginning, and it was not clear to us that we were actually gonna, going to be able to identify works that would fulfill that theme. But we have everything from Lawrence Wiener's wonderful text-based work, From the Sea to the Sea by the Sea, to Willem de Kooning's His Name Was Written Water, and also some surprising, surprising works like George Platline's photographs of bathers, uh, a Kirchner print of bathers in a river. So it's very elastic theme. But for Paul, the way he has described the, um, his project, his contribution, is that in this time, very difficult time that we're in, uh, politically, socially, culturally, that self-care and self-soothing and pleasure is extremely important in that protest and attempting to find ways to make change if you're not also actively trying to care for yourself, that it's not going to be successful. And that's in his wall text. So it's a very philosophical selection in a sense. And to take a, a, a motif that's very common in our history, the bather, and layer it in with a very current meaning. And it's also incredibly playful, in a sense, to move from a a 1970s conceptual artist to high abstraction. Then there's Richard Prince, who seems to be delving into post-war abstraction. Mm -hmm. Well, Richard Prince has been, in his own practice, looking at painting from mid-century and uh, post-war for quite some time. You might recall his de Kooning series, and he's also... Uh, had Picasso series where he moved from his well-known appropriated photography to painting. So in our discussions, we talked about looking at second-generation abstract expressionists. Our collection has quite a few. 
And he was curious just what that would look like, and that's where we started. But what began to happen, and he has a very keen eye, was to look at really uh, typologically how a number of paintings from this period share a certain internal composition. In some cases, a horizontal scaffolding. In some cases, the way planes of color are on the canvas, and not just in American painting, but European, and there's even Japanese examples. And that's very typical to Richard's work from the 1970s when he was photographing photographs, and in some cases, grouping them to show how advertising motifs are uh, or were um, very much aligned formally. So he has a work called Four Models Looking Right, which is why now the title of his section is Four Paintings Looking Right. You're also featuring Carrie Mae Weems, who seems to have st- stuck to a black and white palette throughout. Carrie asked, her first question for us was, uh, who are the artists of color uh, in our collection pre-1980? And that's where, as we discussed in the beginning, there really are gaps in the collection, unfortunately. If we were to move our, the cutoff point of the exhibition up to the present, it would be very, very different because we've been actively collecting in that area and really making great efforts and great strides to diversify the collection. So what Carrie decided to do was a metaphoric uh, contemplation, if you will, on the black and white palette. And her section is called What Could Have Been. So that, that one, in her selection in particular, really meditates on the notion of absence. But at the same time, it's an incredibly beautiful formal installation pairing works from across decades and mediums. There are, there's a wall of all black and white photography, some of which is African, Seydou Keita and Sidibi, as well as a wall of works on paper, and then many sculptures and paintings, and certainly Martin Perrier is, is represented, but it's not the the uh, breadth and depth that I think she was hoping we would have, and of course we wish we had as well. Uh, then there's Julie Moretu. Mm-hmm. Um, her work seemed to be a reaction to the Second World War, according to your wall text. Uh, less about the, the specific war, war per se. What her interest is, is to demonstrate how artists respond to times of crises, and she's very much reacting to the present as well, but going back in time to look at what artists were doing post-war. And she was also very interested in bringing in voices from the global south to the extent to the extent that they are represented in our collection. And it's a very diverse selection, of course, but we have artists such as Wilfredo Lam and um, Mata, uh, who are South American, uh, with our Francis Bacon Three Studies for a Crucifixion, which has to be the most gorgeous and horrific imagery, uh, up to David Hammond's Body Prints. Um, so that round, like Carrie's, I think, stands across different decades, starting post-war, but coming up to the 70s, because we have a, a photograph now, a triptych by Senda Ngudi, a very recent acquisition by an African-American artist, uh, which we felt was very important to include in this uh, because it, it also worked very formally with um, 
a sculpture that's being paired with. Finally, we have Jenny Holzer, mm-hmm. and she's been known for using language to explore how meaning is created in a patriarchal society, I guess you'd mm-hmm. say. Mm-hmm. Um, the introduction to her section invokes Linda Auckland's famous 1971 essay, Why Have There Been No Great Women Artists? Um, what approach is she taking in her installation? Well, I just I think it's important to point out that the title of her section is Good Artists. So it begs the question, is there a female aesthetic? Would you necessarily know walking through if you didn't read the wall labels that all of this work was by women artists? And probably not, because a lot of it is very muscular and monumental in scale. Uh, she's on the top ramp, which has the most generous space in the building. Um, but, of course, they are all women artists, and some of them are her most favorite women artists. They're not all the women artists in the collection, for sure. But artists like Louise Bourgeois, Louise Nevelson, for sure, um, up to the photo-conceptual generation, or otherwise, otherwise known as the pictures generation, of which she is herself a part, though her work itself is not included, though it's in the collection. And I think, as we said at the beginning, the work was included because it was excellent. Once we got to the criteria of female or female-identified, and not everything obviously made the cut. Um, what takeaway or conclusion can we form about the Guggenheim's history from this show? I think that um, one thing that I'm acutely aware of as I'm working on the installation with the artist is how the collection has evolved over time. And as we've added in artists and different kinds of work and expanded the collection from being you know, very strictly dedicated to painting initially, non-objective almost exclusively European and some American to being global, to being multimedia, to including artists of color, to including very deliberately both artists of color and women. That's visible in this, even though we ended in 1980. It would be a very different story if it were 1980 to the present, for sure. So I think that that evolution of a collection is is quite interesting, and it is reflected in the show. Um, one little tip for viewers is that on every label, there's what we call an accession number. And the first two digits in that is the year that the works came in. So if anyone were interested, they could see how the collection has evolved over time. But it also shows us the work we need to do. And for the curators, I think, and hopefully for our supporters, uh, it's to some extent a roadmap of where we go if we're going to fill in gaps, if we're going to fill in historically what we might want to acquire. And we're very grateful to the artists for helping us see that. Well, thank you, Nancy. We're joined today by Paul Chan, one of the six artists chosen to curate the Artistic License Exhibition at the Guggenheim Museum in New York. The title of your show is Sex, Water, Salvation, or What is a Bather? Can you explain that and how this idea evolved? It's a good question. It came about because Nancy Spector invited me. She came uh, and asked me if I would do it. Uh, I would be a part of the exhibition. And I said, uh, sure, what do you got? And so we started talking. And then as we talked, we came up with uh, a few ideas about, uh, about which curatorial direction to go. And it turned out the one that um, I thought uh, had the most promise was the one that uh, is about to open. And that's how it started. Um, In terms of 
uh, the the bather as a theme. Um, this is, uh, you know, in art history, the bather is a is a uh, has a long and storied motif. Um, Cezanne, Matisse, Titian, uh, many artists have dealt with it. Mary Cassatt. Um, but it's not a motif that I thought of until a couple years ago, and it's something that I continually. It's something that um, I've thought about more and more. And it turned out um, two of my authors uh, that I publish in my press, Badlands Unlimited, dealt with the theme of bathers. One was Carol Dunham, the great painter, who's done a magnificent series of bathers a couple years ago, which I thought was incredibly thrilling. Uh, the other was Aruna D'Souza, whose book Whitewalling I publish. Uh, and it, uh, she wrote, uh, one of her earlier books was on Cezanne's bathers. This was way before I had the idea of publishing Aruna's book. And so the idea of the bather was swimming in my mind already. Uh, and, um, and as I thought about them, I started making work uh, using the theme of the bather. And so when Nancy asked me, I was just naturally thinking about bathers and water. And um, uh, it was interesting to see whether or not the Guggenheim had uh, the kind of works that would evoke this idea. And it turned out they did. And great ones, too, I think. The wall text talks about water as a means of regeneration in virtually all cultures. I think that's true. You know, the Greeks thought of it as one of the four primordial elements. Empedocles, specifically, thought water as one of the four main elements that made all of reality. Um, Lao Tzu, the great anarchist, uh, Taoist philosopher, uh, revered water uh, for its capacity to change. And its capacity to uh, to be uh, in all shapes and sizes for all situations, what the Greeks once called polytropos, the me- or many ways, uh, and uh, I think something that didn't make it on the wall text, but I wanted to write was about how um, I don't know anyone who, at the end of a long day, doesn't want a hot bath. And so I think water has always been, for me anyways, uh, a source of regeneration um, and something that is soothing and comforting and uh, uh, makes me feel composed and calm. Does bathing exert like a ritual significance for you in your own life? I drink water every day, and so I suppose that's a ritual. It certainly does have ritualistic qualities, baptism as an idea. Uh, religious idea is certainly very pervasive. So I guess, yes, I think it does. Personally, for me, I'm not sure. The funny thing is, I'm not even a bather. I'm a shower person. And so uh, it's funny to me that I've taken on this theme. But I do love being around water. You know, I'm not from New York. I'm from Hong Kong. And uh, Hong Kong uh, is a peninsula, so I was surrounded by water. Um, Victoria Bay specifically and so the sea and water has always had a kind of uh, special place for me but I think for most people even talking to Nancy um, she was talking about uh, uh, the bodies of water that she was close to growing up here in New York and um, and so I think it's a very common instinct to be connected to water in some way how did you go about making your selections at the Guggenheim? How did you get started? It was through PDFs, 
like most things in the world, it starts with a PDF. And so the Guggenheim sent me a PDF. And uh, I looked through the works. Uh, we spent a couple hours at the at the storage. Uh, what do you call that place? I went to Guggenheim's Citadel of Art to uh, look at the works themselves after the PDF. And um, the process was uh, uh, went that way. We looked at the work. I liked it or I did not like it. It went in or it's not in. And uh, a couple weeks later, a couple months later, we had a show. Can you tell us a little bit about some of your selections for the exhibition? For example, uh, Leger's 1942 painting, Starfish, for example. Sure. Uh, it's a very funny... I like looking at it because it made me laugh. There's a childlike quality to it. I also like the shapes and the bold colors. Also, it's called Starfish, which I thought fit the theme. Um, he's not, Leger is not someone I think about a lot. Uh, and one of the pleasures of doing the show was using a different set of sensibilities. You know, I've talked about this before, about how one of the great pleasures about being an artist is, uh, is that I get to practice what I call other-mindedness, to practice ways of looking at things and feeling things that might not, not naturally occur to me or not given to me. Um, and uh, so it was nice to be other-minded um, as I was looking at the works, to think about the theme, but also think about what things, what else I could think of or like, um, given the theme and the situation that I found myself in. Um, one of the works that stands out in the, sh- in the show is a conceptual work by Lawrence Wiener from 1970. It's titled To the Sea, On the Sea, From the Sea, At the Sea, Bordering the Sea. How did that speak to you? Yes. <laughs> Um, it just did. I think it's a uh, uh, Lawrence Wiener is uh, an icon, a legend, and I was very happy that uh, um, the Guggenheim had that piece in particular, which I thought fit very eloquently and elegantly as the beginning of the ramp for my show, uh, my section of the show. Uh, and I think it's just um, it's just as it says, um, and I think it sets the tone. Maybe. More than anything else, these words on the wall with that particular blue, with that blue carpet, sets a tone um, that I liked. Um, I don't know if I can describe that tone, but it's something that, um, that I can feel. You've also selected Willem de Kooning's Whose Name Was Written Water. Uh, beautiful painting. Um, it makes me feel like I'm uh, drowning um, because of how it makes me feel like waves. Uh, or just above the waterline um, as waves crash against each other. And uh, I thought it was a very worthy addition to, uh, to my section of the show. So very proud to have it in there. Then there's Laurie Simmons's photographs of dollhouse-scale bathroom scenes from the 1970s. Uh, Laurie Simmons uh, is a great artist. And what was great about it is that her work... Um, reflected another aspect of bathing, which is something much more domestic as opposed to uh, more natural, as opposed to the sea, as opposed to a river, as opposed to a beach. You have a bathroom and a bathtub. And I'm a city boy by nature, and uh, my sense of bathing does not come from the beach. It comes from being in a tub and uh, spacing out and having my skin curl up because I have hallucinated my day away. (laughs) wasting away in a bathtub. So it really spoke to me that way. Um, 
I also, yeah, it was really the domestic aspect of bathing that um, I found really interesting. And uh, so I thought it was uh, important to um, add her to my part of the show. Do all these works relate more or less to the sensation of pleasure for a human body? I would like to think so. Uh, Looking at these works certainly gave me pleasure. Um, Whether or not they speak to my peculiar notions of pleasure, uh, I don't know. But uh, I think uh, what was great about doing the show was uh, the experience of being in front of the works uh, to see whether or not they were pleasing at least to me. Uh, and that in itself was, uh, I was very grateful for. In the course of all your browsing at the Guggenheim, did you reflect at all on what its collection might be missing in terms of the history of 20th century art, when in fact many collections have missed? Huh. It's an interesting question. That question did not occur to me because um, I don't know what I'm missing, to tell you the truth. And as an artist, what I'm looking for is what I can get away with, what, what I've got. And uh, what I've got at the time was uh, an incredible collection of particular works by a particular institution. And given my theme, I was surprised that there was so much. And so I felt like it was a bounty rather than uh, anything else. I'm sure there are many things uh, that would be worthy of being a part of the Guggenheim collection. And I hope they make it in there. Uh, As for me, um, I was uh, very happy of the amount of stuff they had uh, on water and bathing, which gave me enough pleasure to include it in the show. Ideally, how do you imagine museum goers reacting to your installation? What I would love to see are people slowly walking up the ramp and then getting drowsy, and then they would slowly... um, uh, uh, drop down to the floor because it's carpeted in this beautiful blue carpet and they would fall asleep and they would dream and take a nap and as they take a nap they would uh, they would think about all the things that give them pleasure and to give them uh, sustenance for what the day demands and then they will wake up and finish the ramp and ideally then the Guggenheim will give them free coffee so that they can wake up from their nap on my ramp on the carpet Well, thank you, Paul. You're welcome. Artistic license, six takes on the Guggenheim collection, is at the Guggenheim Museum in New York until the 12th of January. And that's all for this week. You can read more about these and other stories online at theartnewspaper.com or on our app for iOS, which you can find at the App Store. On the website, you'll find a range of subscriptions, so you can read our content seamlessly across multiple platforms. And do subscribe to our daily newsletter for all the latest news. Visit theartnewspaper.com and click the newsletter link at the top right of the page. Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast if you haven't already done so, and if you're enjoying it, please give us a rating or review on iTunes. It helps others to find us. You can follow us on Twitter at Tan Audio, and The Art Newspaper is on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook, of course. The Art Newspaper podcast is produced by Julia Mahowska, Amy Dawson and David Clack, and David is also the editor. Thanks to Nancy Kenny and Nancy Spector, to Paul, to Michael, and thanks to you for listening. See you next week. The Art Newspaper podcast is brought to you in association with Bonhams, auctioneers since 1793. To find out more, visit bonhams.com now.